0: Thank you for downloading this
1: Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter.
0: Good evening, everyone. My name is Jana Peel. As director of the Intelligence Squared group, it's a tremendous pleasure to welcome you here this evening. This marks our fourth annual art fair debate and our 10th in Asia. It also marks the 10-year anniversary of our international Intelligence Squared group operations, which we're very thrilled now to be operating with our Hong Kong team. Over the years, the Art Fair has undoubtedly and hopefully irreversibly transformed our Hong Kong landscape. As a community, we're very grateful to Magnus, to Mark, to Annette for catalyzing what Hans Ulrich has lovingly dubbed the Hong Kong Miracle, which brings so many of you here this evening. It's a miracle which has unfolded against a very um, contradictory backdrop, and it's because of those contradictions that it's very topical to be discussing here and now why contemporary art excludes the 99%. With us to support and challenge the motion, we have four very distinguished guests. Thank you very much to Paul, Ben, Joe, and Lizanne for coming here to share so generously of your wit and wisdom. We also have a formidable Moderator in Georgina Adam. Georgina's task has been to keep our speakers punctual, focused, and in sharp contrast to previous years, fully dressed. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Hello, I'm Amelie von Wedel, um, co-founder of Intelligence Squared Asia together with Jana Peel. Um, I want to thank you very, m- I want to thank you very much. Our main sponsor, the Deutsche Bank. For their ongoing support, um, which made all of this possible for the last four years, and they will continue to do so, which we are very thrilled about. And um, the Deutsche Bank support means that we can bring debate to you, but that we can also bring debate to local through schools and the wider community through a mentor-led program that's called Debate made. Also, big thank you to Ogilvy, uh, Phillips dippery and the Upper House, as well as our media sponsors, New York, the International H- Tribune. But it belongs to the New York Times, so it's fine. And um, and Time Out. And I think last but not least, thank you very much for all of you to being here tonight. Thank you.
1: I'd like to add my thanks to Yana to and Amélie for making this happen and I'm extremely excited about this um, panel because uh, it's very relevant to what I do. I write about the art market so I write about the value of art and I hope that our debaters will talk about the aesthetic value and perhaps the monetary value and we shall see what they have to say. Anyway, we're here as well to enjoy ourselves and I hope everyone does. Um, the motion, as you know, Contemporary Art excludes the 99% and I'd just like to remind you that 10 days ago I was standing in a sale room in New York and I saw a Richter sell for $21 million it's a living artist and a Rothko who's a recently 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 dead artist sold for $86 million so that's just to give you the context of the monetary value of art today but whether it's the aesthetic value is another matter So I'm extremely lucky to have such wonderful speakers here. I'm going to start um, just simply on my right-hand side with Paul Chan, who is himself an acclaimed artist and a publisher. He's um, written, he's done lots of interviews, written a number of essays. He's worked for Art Forum and Freeze Magazine. Uh, He's exhibited at the Venice Biennale, at the Whitney. Uh, He was born here in Hong Kong, but he's now based in New York. Um, more recent shows. He he works with Light, and uh, recent shows were at the Serpentine and the New Museum, a show called Seven Lights. Uh, And amongst his extracurricular activities, um, in 2002, he was with an American aid group that was working in Baghdad before the U.S. engagement, Uh, and he will also be participating in Documenta in June. Uh, You do have bios of all of our wonderful speakers in your packs that you have on your seats. So next we have, on, immediately on my right, um, uh, the filmmaker, author, art critic Ben Lewis, uh, well known to BBC audiences and to Arte. Um, he is award-winning as well. I'm afraid everyone here is award-winning except for me, but there we are. <laughs> um, so the great contemporary art bubble and another series on the BBC as well, which was called Art Safari, widely published as an author and as a journalist. Um, uh, sometimes his publishing has actually led him uh, to be excluded from auction sales, so he can be pretty controversial. He says it hasn't been good for his career as writing about the art market. Anyway, so we also welcome Ben Lewis. Then, obviously, a great honor to have on my left Joseph Kosuth, a pioneer of conceptual and installation art and the use of photography. Uh, he can teach us all a lot. Um, once again, covered with awards. He even has a French postage stamp dedicated to him. Um, uh, last week he was inducted into the Royal, Be- Belgium, sorry, Royal Belgian Academy Excuse me. Um, and he, her, his work has consistently explored art and language so obviously it's wonderful because he's going to talk to us about art which is his two things and last but not least as they say I'm sorry that Lizanne McGregor who is director of the Australian Museum of Contemporary Art, is at the end of our panel. But as she says, Australia is sort of at the end anyway. So So, uh, her career started as a curator and driver for the Scottish Arts Council, and I think she's going to perhaps mention what she was doing when she was driving around Scotland. Uh, She was a director of the Icon Gallery in Birmingham. She received the OBE last year. And of course, her great project, which has come to fruition after a long and difficult gestation from time to time, is the extension of her um, Museum of Contemporary Art in Sydney this year. Um, as you know, well, those of you who were here last year know that there was a striptease last year. We, as you know, you can't promise you that. But um, not get has your hopes
3: her. up. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but Stuart Ringhold um, has uh, recently been doing new tours of the, exib- of, of, um, the gallery, so of the museum. Um, I'm afraid one or two things to tell you. One is that uh, each of our debaters will have ten minutes. They will get a ding. It would be good if I had something metal to ding with. That's enough. That's a, well, it may not be. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so after uh, nine minutes, there will be a first ding, and after ten minutes, there will be a double ding, which really means that it's time to hear from the next person. Um, While we're on the subject of this very technological thing, I would also like to remind you to turn off your mobiles if you haven't. Um, (laughs) Joseph, we might start with you. I turned mine off. I really did. Also, uh, there is tweeting in the room, and if you're interested, the hashtag is IQ2Asia, if anybody wants. But still, please turn off the sound of your mobiles. Now, as you all know, you voted on the way in. You each have a little... um, uh, You were asked on your way in. So we start off with the following figures. In percentages, we had 39% for and 41% against, and we had 20% don't knows. You have on your seats... um, a little voting ballot and towards the end I will explain to you how to use it you will vote again we are now going to open the debate and we're going to open the debate with Ben who is for the motion would you like to go there? Yeah, sure. as, as you like no, no, Joseph okay. is staying
4: here okie Okay, Hello. Ladies and gentlemen, we all have a dream that we share. The dream that one day all of humanity will take an interest in, enjoy, and sometimes be thrilled and moved by contemporary art. That every major town will have its own contemporary art institution. That everyone will buy and collect some kind of contemporary art, possibly printed off the Internet, may be bought from art car boot sales. And that art will become a kind of intelligent mass entertainment. In my ideal world, a mixture of Baywatch and Heidegger. (laughs) And yes, we're on our way. Millions more people are interested in art than once were. There are plans announced every day, it seems, for big new art institutions, as one in Georgina's newspaper I think today on the front page or something, some new Chinese institution but we're not there yet we're not 100% there yet we're not even 2% there yet far from it in fact in some ways many of us here in this room with the greatest enthusiasm for art are preventing this dream from happening the vote today in this house is actually between those of us who live in a utopian dream world and those of us who can acknowledge a difficult reality. I am pleading for realism today. Ladies and gentlemen, I love contemporary art, but I don't believe in it. Art is not Jesus. It will not rise on the third day and be the salvation of mankind. Art is not a god to worship, or a religion to follow, or a political program to believe in. At the moment, it's a cultural and commercial activity conducted by a tiny minority of human beings. Ladies and gentlemen, when I was invited to speak in favour of this motion, my first thought was no way. (laughs) I'd spent the day queuing for an hour to get into the Biennale or the Pompidou or Frieze—I can't remember which—calendar is so full—and inside, you could hardly see the art; there were so many people. And I thought, I can't argue in support of this motion. 1%? One per cent? That's tiny. I remember the eighties. It was a cultural desert. Galleries and art shows today are twice as full as they were thirty years ago. Do you remember that, sir? You remember that? And then I picked up a newspaper. And the headline said World Population, seven billion. <laughs> <laughs> Doubled since nineteen seventy. And I thought, Oh yes. That's why. And I got out my calculator, and I thought, what is 1% of 7 billion? And although maths was my worst subject at school, I've calculated it at 70 million. I think that's right. And personally, I've never seen 70 million people at an art gallery. (laughs) And I think... Something more plausible. If you were to add up all the subscribers of all the art magazines in the world, you wouldn't reach 700,000, would you? Times 100 equals 70 million. Is that right? Yeah? Okay, good. (laughs) Anyway, this isn't really emotional about concrete figures, but you get the spirit. You probably think think I'm going to start with criticising the elitism of the art market, and I will soon, I promise. (laughs) I'm going to try and make you all squirm in your seats, particularly you, sir. Um, I made a documentary in 2008 called The Great Contemporary Art Bubble, which followed the art market from its peak until the crash, and it revealed the way that the art market was stage-managed by a tiny elite. But that's not the only reason why I think I've got a perspective that qualifies me to talk to you today. Because for the fa- past two years, I've been making another film about to- the total opposite, an animated history of poverty. And my words to you tonight are going to be based on what I've learned making these two radically different films. Ladies and gentlemen, in 2010, the renowned economist Joseph Stiglitz wrote an article which defined the economics of the age in which we're now living Riffing on the famous line from the American Constitution, it was called for the 1%, by the 1%, of the 1%. Stiglitz's complaint is that we were living in an ever more unequal society where 1% of Americans own 25% of the wealth. In 2010, China's Gini coefficient, which is a measure of how wealth is distributed in a society, stood at 0.47, which is larger than in the United States. Today, 45% of the world live on less than $2 a day. Today, contemporary art is for the 1%, by the 1%, and of the 1%. But let me tell you a few things that I think, a few ways in which I think that contemporary art does not exclude 99% of human beings. Personally, I don't think contemporary art is difficult to understand. Most of it's not much more tricky to grasp than a movie or a rap video. Some of it even looks like a graphic novel or a cartoon. Art is not as complicated as some people in the art world like to think it is. Also, I don't think art excludes 99% of people. There are big figures today for museums and modernist exhibitions. Some art only excludes 75% of people. It's my point isn't that poor people don't understand art, it's that the nature of contemporary art today is a social system that is excluding. Many of you will be latching on to the verb exclude. Contemporary art, you will say, does not exclude anyone. The institutions or the market do. Contemporary art is free, you'll be thinking. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, that is because if they charge for it, it wouldn't be 1% people who were interested in the art world, it would be 0.00001%. Yes, there may be queues for the latest Damien Hirst exhibition in London, and it costs a tenner to get in. But imagine if they were charging the same price as it costs to get into a rock concert by Prince or David Bowie. $100. How many people would be going then? Some artists participate in this exclusion creating inflated luxury objects, the shiny stuff. And others don't, but the point is that the 99% don't experience contemporary art as something purely offered up by artists. For them, it is a bigger experience. Once they're inside these exhibitions, the experience often has little to do with art. The big new museums built by star architects like Gary and Herzog and de Moron are experiences of space, not art, Thrilling, cavernous temples, often offering funfair-like experiences on a scale that could not be obtained anywhere else. and Hollow's slides, Murakami's cartoons, Anish Kapoor's crazy mirrors. Even if you think that 7% of humanity, a huge half a billion people, go to art exhibitions, then I would argue that few of them are there for a truly artistic experience. In fact, it is the way the art experience is structured now, it's through the way the art experience is structured now that we can understand exclusion. First the thrill of empty spaces, awe at the scale, then a funfair ride, then the exhibitions. Most of us wander around the shows like serfs in Tsarist Russia. Mud-spattered peasants gazing at oversized trophies funded by banks and billionaires appropriately the most famous works of art today are actually the ones that carry the message we've got the lolly (laughs) of which Damien Hirst's Diamond Skull is the obvious example why do we feel that? the art market and its record breaking prices that keep on rising and rising while 99% of us get poorer and poorer let me introduce you to Lewis's law it's a bit like Moore's law the more unequal the society, the higher the prices paid for art. And that brings me, luckily with a minute to go, (laughs) to my main point. Contemporary art today does not just exclude the 99%, it actually embodies their exclusion. All these new art institutions, all these incredible prices paid for works of art, all these spaces so full of art They are all made possible economically because of the concentration of wealth in the top 1% 1 of humanity. The growth of art today is based on exclusion, economic and social, of the 99%. It's significant that the chap who paid a record price for Warhol's green car crash, $72 million, in 2007, was a Greek shipping billionaire. Now, when I think about the suffering of the Greek people today, I think (laughs) how the art world is built on exclusion. That is the tragedy of art today. The more inflated the market, the richer the art world becomes, the more the majority are excluded from art.
1: Thank you very much. Now for our next speaker, Joseph, who is going to remain seated
0: here.
3: i bypass the authority of the podium. Um, Okay, I'm going to try to clear up the confusion. (laughs) From any standard anthropological point of view, our religion now is science. When we have serious questions concerning our existence, most of us no longer go to a priest or a rabbi or any other religious leader. We go to a scientist. When we have serious um, questions about the nature of reality, the person we rely on is a scientist, be, the fa- be it the family doctor, the engineer, or the biologist. For the big questions about the universe, we ask the astrophysicist. Our faith is in science. Historically, simultaneous to science becoming our religion, the 20th century witnessed two other important things occur. In the first case, philosophy increasingly became an academic subject, more historical by nature than providing insights about our daily life. Philosophy's state of impossibility was well articulated by both Wittgenstein and Nietzsche. The kinds of philosophical speculation and assertions we once associated with the activity which went under that name no longer seemed possible or believable. In modernity, while traditional religion was being eclipsed by science and philosophy had become a stillborn academic enterprise, art increasingly began to flourish. Although very practical, science, however, has been a very impoverished religion. It has never been able to answer any of the big questions about the nature of the meaning of human existence. A traditional aspect of religion, nor, due to its own nature, does it even try? As a result, we have seen a crisis of meaning become basic to our lives in the 20th century. Simultaneously, however, we have seen more and more younger people become artists. We see more and more museums of contemporary art being built. We see the audiences for contemporary art increasingly growing. All this despite and contradicting the populist idea that art is elitist for a chosen few. And even though this may be hand in glove with its growing market, One cannot deny the engagement of millions of people with art that neither buy, sell, nor invest. This, I propose, is the background that has set the scene for art itself to evolve into a point where it has eclipsed, in many ways, the role philosophy once had. Yet, unlike philosophy, art doesn't speculate, it doesn't assert. In a truly Wittgensteinian way, it shows, it manifests. To experience a work of art is to reflect on how meaning itself is made in our culture. It is a reflexive and reflective moment we share together of our individual interior landscape, one which connects to something larger than just ourselves. More than anything else, artists make meaning, and this is regardless of whether they work with forms and colors, text, videos, installation films, or any of the variety of other things we call art. Contemporary art increasingly takes from that from the horizon of that general culture which both forms us and connects us, interiorizing linguistic components within popular culture itself, and engaging in generating that state of consciousness which forms all of us. Through art, we implicitly ask the questions about our culture, which must be asked. Those questions that thus also have a political life. And through art, we create a context in which our world is continually transformed. In an interview in Uh, 2007 with Germano Chalant, published in my catalog for the Language of Equilibrium, my installation on the island of San Lazaro for the 52nd Venice Biennale, I made the following observation. Since artists ultimately work with meaning, then the struggle with market forces over the meaning of their work becomes an important part of their responsibility as artists. If If the artist doesn't put up the fight to provide the meaning, then the market certainly will. Thus, the struggle is continuous and, one could say, even essential to the artistic process now. All that said, concerning the work's relationship with the market, notwithstanding, there still has emerged a kind of bifurcation within the market itself. It seems obvious that some artists and many collectors haven't realized that two historical tracks have emerged. One has always been there, and that is a history of ideas. That project of art which I outlined above, what we generally and previously called art history. But what has emerged parallel to it, even sometimes competing with it, is the history of the art market itself. That has created its own culture around it, and many now make the serious error of confusing and compounding the two. Such mistakes are easy and understandable, since works of actual art historical significance are also in play in both histories. The first actual art history is defined by the works of those who were original and generated new ideas and and had an impact, and thus changed art history as they contributed something of substance to human history. The second is based on short-term desire and market scarcity for works which are often clearly derivative or at least of dubious historical consequence. But they are our modern-day tulips, and they create a sensation as market news, even if not as an event in art history itself. While we may all be very much aware that in Western society, cultural engagement is expressed in economic terms, there is another understanding we must also be aware of. The two most powerful groups in our society, the two groups having the most formative and greatest immediate impact on the quality of our daily lives, politicians and businessmen and women, are in fact both committed to short-term goals. The politicians' decisions are ultimately dedicated to maintaining and extending their power. Those in business' decisions are dedicated primarily to one goal, seeing a profit at the end of the day. In fact, in our society, it is the artists, the intellectuals, the writers, the makers of culture, those engaged in activities comprised of the pursuit of values that that speak of excellence and of doing it well in a way and for a standard based on its own self-understanding, which creates meaning within society. These individuals are ones that by and large produce our culture and are thus engaged in activities that are dedicated to long-term goals. In the whole cloth of society, it is these long threads, these these activities by such individuals which provide these strong, longer threads that bind our society together and give it meaning and purpose and strength and connect us with a longer history than our personal one and is a cause that is perhaps more of a contribution than simply personal gratification, and gain. It is such activities as culture that give us the substantial long view of human existence, which the day-to-day struggles for money or power on the surface of that existence can be seen as so qualitatively different. So, to finish, so does art. That is, it is the art of art history. For the 99%, of course it is. We should never mistake the history of an activity which has reflected and formed our interior life along with our self-image as a people within human history, one which goes back for centuries for the momentary hyperactivity of 1% of the art market, even if reported so avidly by the press. This is no doubt part of our social history, certainly is part of our financial history, but it's not really part of art history. Thank you. get
1: a ding <laughs> I know you, you beat the ding uh, next for the motion Paul Chan. thank you
5: can you hear me great okay so thank you for having me here at the debate it is no doubt important to think about how art expresses what is worth living for in contemporary life This is why I accepted the invitation to be here. But to tell you the truth, this isn't the real reason why I came. I'm here tonight because the debate sponsors offered me a free ticket home. (laughs) Business class, even. (laughs) The legroom and free champagne were almost too luxurious for someone like me, who either by nature or nurture prefer more Spartan accommodations. But I'm not complaining, because being here with you gives me a reason to be home. New York is where I live, but Kowloon was where I was born and raised. Being home, though, does not necessarily mean one feels at home. I have not been back for years, and in many ways, a foreigner in my own hometown. The interesting thing about the notion of home is that is it is as much about a feeling as it is about a particular place in one's life. It is the feeling of being in accord with a place that embodies the most of who we are and who we want to be. In other words, home is where we feel like we belong. As far as I can tell, the great German philosopher Hegel has never been accused of being an emotional man. But even he evokes this feeling to characterize one of his key concepts, reconciliation. It is an excruciatingly difficult to summarize, but fairly simple to describe. Reconciliation is the state of where one feels at home in the world. On the other hand, what does it feel like when one does not feel at home? I want to suggest to you that it is a feeling of being excluded, of not belonging. Last September, in my other hometown of New York City, the Occupy Wall Street protests erupted as a movement that expressed how a vast, vast majority of Americans, 99% of them in fact, were being systematically excluded from the ways and means that historically enabled them to be the most they can be, economically, politically, socially. People lost jobs and places to live and were shut out of the opportunities that make contemporary life genuinely livable. Destructive forms of social inequality make it impossible for one to feel at home in the world. And the fact that Occupy protests have spread around the globe is an indication of just how widespread social inequalities have become. In a sense, tonight's motion has nothing to do with art at all, insofar as it is made and thought about by someone like me, an artist. Rather, what animates the motion is the idea that art is art insofar as it is shown at art fairs like the one at this convention, or sold by dealers, or bought by collectors, or written about by magazines, or exhibited and venerated by museums. In other words, it is the image of art as it expresses and reflects the experience of a set of social relations seemingly untouched by the suffering caused by social inequalities, and in truth, may even indirectly thrive because of them. Marcel Duchamp was famous for declaring that the onlooker has as much say about what a work of art means as the artist who makes it. For Duchamp, art is defined socially, and it is the society that ultimately determines how art looks to us as it relates to our lives. So now a simple question. What does art look like today, socially speaking? It seems pretty clear to me. It looks luxurious. When art makes news, it is usually because of staggering amounts of money it fetches at auctions. When art is an event, it is typically now at fairs like this one, or the one in New York a few weeks ago, or the one in Basel, Switzerland, a few weeks from now. When art brings people together, it is by way of glamorously choreographed dinners and parties and galas like the ones you have not been invited to.
0: <laughs>
5: Perhaps this is all too anecdotal for you, in which case, I submit to you the most concrete evidence I hold. I flew business class. I have pictures. I haven't flown business class in like 600 years. <laughs> It seems to me that whatever art is today, its importance, that is to say, the interest it holds in the social imagination, comes largely from how it expresses what constitutes the good life. I want to be clear, or what is known now as the life of the 1%. I want to be clear here. I have nothing against a good life. I think everyone deserves expensive champagne, relaxing vacations, great places to live, and chances to feel at home with contemporary art by partaking in the glamour and excitement of those social relations that value art most. It is good because it is the kind of living that is more than merely surviving, which is perhaps a more accurate description of what it's like to live in the 99%, meal by meal, day by day, paycheck by paycheck. If art excludes the 99%, I think it is because it takes time and energy to include art in one's life not to speak of money, to devote to art in ways that would make it meaningful. And the truth is that 99% of people are simply too busy trying to stay afloat or alive in what is turning out to be the grimmest and most volatile global economic landscape in living memory. Anyone with a job or two jobs, working 40 or 50 or 60 hours a week, or who recently lost a job, and has kids to feed, or parents to take care of, or mounting debt, or is unemployed, or even homeless can tell you this, probably better than I can. This is because experience is the greatest teacher. Knowledge gained through experience substantiates thinking in ways that makes facts and figures as abstract and boring as they actually are. Up to now, I've been talking about how I believe things appear and what I understand the situation to be. Now I would like to tell you what I think is true through my experience as an artist. Tonight's motion that contemporary art excludes the 99% does not go far enough because it doesn't have a particular kind of contemporary art in mind. I want to amend tonight's motion so that it reflects a more discriminating and accurate artistic reality because only mediocre contemporary art excludes 99% of the people. Great contemporary art excludes 100% of them. (laughs) This, now, here, everywhere, is not the best of all possible worlds. The reason why artists make art is because the current state of affairs is simply not good or interesting enough. Imagining what else is possible through forms of expression is how art renews the feeling that there must be better ways to do things. And the more ambitious the art is, the more ruthless and uncaring it is about what actually belongs in this sorry excuse for a world. This is why the greatest works tend to feel otherworldly, even though they may be as simple and down to earth as a painting of apples on a wooden table, or a play about two men waiting for someone who never comes, or the sound of silence that lasts exactly four minutes and 33 seconds. They're composed of things we're all familiar with, but they're made in such a way that they seem to follow another set of rules entirely, if they follow any rules at all. This is why they feel otherworldly, Real freedom feels alien at first, and hard to comprehend. The art I admire most is the kind I understand the least, and keep on not understanding. It shows, uncompromisingly, that another world is possible, and that neither the world the 99% struggles with, nor the one enjoyed by the 1%, are good enough to settle for. I want to be clear here. I have nothing against this world. It is pleasant enough, And I'm happy to belong here and be included in practically anything that doesn't involve meetings or the police. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) This is home. On the other hand, this is not it, not even close. Thank you.
1: And for our final speaker, against the motion, Lizanne McGregor.
6: Thank you. Thank you, Georgina. As Georgina said, I began my career in the art world in a somewhat unorthodox manner. I was the curator and driver of a travelling gallery. This meant that I took exhibitions on board a converted bus all over Scotland. Now, I trained in art history, and I have to admit that when I landed this extraordinary job, I had the typical traditional art historian's disdain for the contemporary. But it soon changed. First of all, as a result of meeting a group of artists and becoming fascinated by their work. And secondly, by driving my bus into towns and villages and opening the doors and encouraging the audience to come in, which they did if only out of curiosity. And once on board the bus, visitors had no inhibitions about debating what was on view, often robustly. And I came to realise it's not contemporary art that alienates the 99%. It's the context in which we place it. It's that aura of exclusivity that galleries exude, not the art. When people all people are given the chance to look and encouraged to inquire and perhaps have someone impart some further information, people are in general open-minded and interested. If, on the other hand, they dare to venture into a silent, white-walled gallery where they find themselves being scrutinised by a fashionably clad gallery assistant who may or may not hand them any further information which makes no sense to them whatsoever, they are liable to turn tail and run, as I have myself on the rare occasion as an art history student when I ventured into the hallowed spaces of the commercial world of Cork Street. Those of you familiar with the British comedy series Absolutely Fabulous may remember that wonderful sketch where Jennifer Saunders attempts to buy some art for her new house after half an hour of haggling with the fashionably clad gallery assistant who refuses to give her the prices, she says, drop the attitude, it's just a shop. (laughs) Now, of course, commercial galleries have a vested interest in art being for the elite, an elite that can only be penetrated by money and perseverance, an elite that never goes beyond the 1%, because keeping art in elite increases its value which is all well and good in the commercial world. But what about the public sector? Well, I only lasted three years on the bus, and then I began to work as a curator, where I discovered, to my astonishment, that publicly funded contemporary galleries were modelled on the private sector. Exhibitions lasting for three or four weeks, minimal background information staff in the galleries whose principal job was to make sure that any member of the great unwashed public who happened to stray in didn't damage the work, creating that all-important aura of exclusivity. This changed, though, with the attacks on public funding for the arts during the Thatcher years, when public galleries had to justify their existence and demonstrate a wider appeal. Debates about access became critical, and the provision of information was a key issue. And why not? Curators have access to so much more information directly from artists. Why do we expect the public to get it like that? Why not provide more information? This concern became a key difference between the commercial world and the world of the public sector, where we have seen an astonishing rise in attendances. And even the critics have woken up to the fact In 1993, the year that Rachel Whiteread won the Turner Prize, an article appeared in the Sunday Times entitled A Conspiracy of Theorists. David Mills had analysed the annual chorus of disapproval about the Turner Prize, a chorus that universally claimed the man in the street doesn't like contemporary art. So Mills went to the Tate. He reported to be astounded by the numbers of people, but moreover, by the atmosphere and the response. No reverential hush here. People from all backgrounds animatedly discussing what was on show. And having spent a couple of hours, he had to admit, the public actually enjoys this stuff. The conclusion he came to was that the critics, who of course only went to the private views where they quaffed champagne we were totally out of touch with the popular opinion that they claimed to represent. I felt like cheering. When I took up my current post in Sydney, the museum had been subjected to a similar barrage of criticism. Great gallery, but nobody goes. Nice gallery, shame about the art. And my all-time favourite when the museum received a one-off grant from the government, money for wankers. <laughs> we set out to address this not by changing the art but by changing its context, by training the staff to be friendly towards our visitors, to provide information, and to work closely with artists, because what artists would not want more people to engage with their work? We've addressed this elitist stereotype by going beyond the gallery to where people are not wealthy, to the western suburbs of Sydney, where, for example, French artist Sylvie Blocher has been working with the rugby league club, the Penrith Panthers, For those of you not familiar with sporting codes in Sydney, Rugby League is the game supported by the poorer western suburbs as opposed to Rugby Union in the wealthier east. In the past ten years or so, the numbers have increased in the museum and the demographic has widened. Our visitors are not just from the wealthy eastern suburbs. Young people flock to our programmes for teenagers. And we're now regularly voted Sydney's favourite attraction. On one occasion, we even beat the zoo, Since my days as a bus driver, I've believed passionately that contemporary art can and should be for everyone who chooses to engage. It can be a complex discipline, and it may need more than a passing glance. But then, for those who want to nip into a gallery in their lunch hour and be inspired by a great work of art, contemporary art can do that too, because what we have is a field that is as rich and diverse as the audience that comes to see it. Every city needs a biennale, major exhibitions that seek to engage with local audiences, and the success of the world of contemporary art in public engagement is shown in the number of contemporary exhibitions that are now on the list of top ten visited exhibitions. Last year in the UK, it was not an Impressionist masterpiece show, but Fiona Banner in the Devine Hall at Tate Britain. Many other artists now feature on these lists, some as unusual as Francis Alice and, of course, Ai Weiwei. I'm therefore arguing against the motion that contemporary art excludes the 99%, because not even when people are in a situation of poverty should art be excluded. If artists approach those situations in, in the right way, art, after all, is the food for the soul. We, ha- we cannot live by bread alone. When the context is right, the public responds. Imagine a world without art... I therefore argue that contemporary art in the right context includes everyone who chooses to have something to do with it. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you to all our really wonderful debaters who have defended um, their positions so well. Uh, It's now a chance for you to ask them questions. I'm going to open question time. Uh, I would like you to firstly wait until the microphone gets to you so that everyone can hear your question. Um, Would you please identify yourself? And uh, would you also say to whom your question is directed? And I'm going to take three questions at a time. So we have one here... can only take one, but it's <laughs> we have one here, one over there, and the third one. Can I have a third question? It's, is that a question over there? Okay, well, well, we'll start by taking the two questions we have, so this gentleman here, and then over there, and then over there.
0: Um, I have a um, – Frederick Balfour from Bloomberg. I have a question for both uh, sides, Perhaps we should consider taxing the 1% in order to help make art available for the 99%. I'd like both sides to suggest what would be an appropriate tax rate on the owners (laughs) and sellers of art. Thank you.
1: Thank you. And we have another question over there. Sorry, while the microphone is going across the other question, would you kindly, this question was perfect because it was brief and to the point and I would be grateful if you would always keep your questions brief and to the point. (laughs) Um, Second question over there, have you got the microphone? Yes. Um, Hi, I'm Christina from Pipeline Magazine, Hong Kong and my question is to uh, Ben Lewis and Paul Chan and I would like to ask them um, what do you make of contemporary art being the subject of reality TV, and perhaps magazines don't get that many subscriptions, but they're going um, on iPads and apps, and there's more editions, artist editions being made. Right, so both questions were directed to the right hand side. Um, taxing the 1% to make art available, more available to the 99%, and um, the position of what your opinion is of contemporary art and reality TV.
4: Um, well, if I can deal with reality TV first, which is a, something I hate more than almost anything in the world. Um, <laughs> the, the, the good news is that the reality television programs about contemporary art rate really badly. Um, I don't know if anyone heard of um, School for Saatchi. Was that the one in Britain? Which was an absolute disar- disaster in terms of ratings because no one actually wants to watch these programs. And um, one of the arguments you can make against the popularity of contemporary art is you can say, no one wants to watch it on TV, and it's very difficult to get programs commissioned by broadcasters who have to reach a mass audience on the subject of contemporary art. Do you want me to answer this chap's question as well?
1: Yes, um, and then perhaps... And and then Paul yes, can, very quickly. Yes? Well, do.
4: I think we do have to tax the rich, uh, but not, um, not, not to make money for the art world, or to attract more people into the art world, because t- in today's world, uh, uh, f- of the population, sorry, 97% of the world have 50% of the wealth and the other 3% have the other 50%. And, in fact, with a very small amount of taxation, if you were just to sort of cross over and get 2% more towards the poor people, you could wipe out extreme poverty overnight. That's why I think we need to tax rich people more. (laughs) Paul.
3: I think okay. we should also keep in mind that reality TV was came into our world because of a strike of writers in New York, and they had to keep they had to put something on, and somebody <laughs> came up with a great idea that they have a show without, it, without without it being written.
5: <laughs> Draw your own conclusions from why <laughs> I introduced this. I'll take the tax question first. Um, I just like to focus on the art, and I think um, I think uh, as a counter idea is an idea I always had about movies. I haven't paid for a movie in years because I download them illegally. And I think, <laughs> and I think it's, um, and the more popular a movie, the more downloaded it becomes. And I think it's a good idea to imagine that the more popular something becomes, the freer it should be. So I always thought that maybe if movies made a certain amount of money, like $100 million or $50 million, it just literally just becomes free. Like, there's no point in owning it anymore that everyone wants to see it, so why not let people see it? So I'd like to propose that uh, the valuation of artwork reach a certain level, let's say a million dollars. But if it becomes valued over a million dollars, it, it literally becomes state property, becomes free property. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that way... That way, you keep new art being produced while the art that becomes valuated up to a point becomes free. Um, as far as the reality television, I don't think, it, I don't think it's um, anything special that um, art is a part of reality TV. Like I said, I think we, people want to belong. I think that's what people want. And reality te- television, I think aesthetically, socially, is a, feel, a way of people feeling like they will belong. And they will use whatever prop necessary for us to feel like we belong, art being one of them. I think reality television art has nothing to do with art. Just like reality television about fashion has nothing to do with fashion.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, More questions in the room? So we have one here. I'd like to take three at a time, please. Have I got more hands Uh, there at the back? There's two at the back. Uh, I can see a gentleman in grey and a hand, but without the rest of the... Yes, and a lady. Right. Please go ahead.
0: I'm Melissa Lam. I'm a freelance curator and a lecturer at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. My question is for Joseph Kosa. Um, You mentioned that artists must put up the fight to provide meaning, otherwise the market will. Um, What if there is no longer a binary
6: opposition between the two? What if the artist works in collaboration with the market? Would that mean the two historical tracks that you mentioned, art history and art market, would converge?
3: Well, I think what you... Can I take the other two, questions? Oh, my apology. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. I I won't remember by then, but it's quite all right. (laughs)
1: Uh, So, at the back, gentlemen, at the back.
5: Uh, My name is Mark Zavatsky. I I work for several Russian media. I'd like to ask, uh, I guess, Paul and and Ben about what you think about politically motivated contemporary art, because uh, from the Russian experience, like from what I can see now, that art in Russia is becoming very, very important mostly because uh, some of the actions are very
7: politically motivated and, and very extreme. And to be included in the contemporary art, you, you, you don't need to like, like, to like it or to collect it. You, you, you can
0: hate
5: it with, with, with all your heart and still you'll be a, a part of this process. So my question is, uh, do you think that, uh, that politically motivated or socially motivated play, contemporary art can be more, 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 more inclusive? There's the jewellery part, like like type of art that that
4: Paul has has mentioned. Thank you. Thank you.
1: And the third question, which was over there as well. Yes, have you? Can you get the microphone, please?
2: Uh, Hi, my name is Renita Malhotra-Hora from RTHK. Um, I had a chat with a lovely chat with Ben Lewis this morning, and he raised some really interesting uh, issues. Um, You know, for investors in art, when they uh, a lot of their interest is driven by Who else is buying and how is that going to impact the future value of this particular artist? Um, So Paul, your idea is interesting that when art reaches a million dollars, maybe then it should just become state property. I'd like to propose another idea. Um, What do you think conceptually about a listed exchange where you could trade shares in art? I'd like to sort of explore that with both sides.
1: With both sides. Right. Thank you very much. So we'll start with the first question, which was for Joseph. Um, Convergence.
3: (laughs) It's kind of interesting. It has so much to do with how well it's done. Warhol did it, you know, and we were all both at the time flabbergasted and, and against all of our kind of instincts as artists, really quite amazed by it. And I think it was a large framing of of an activity uh, and it was part of a package of who Warhol was um, that he did it. um, And somehow um, it was a kind of celebration that led to somewhat of a critical view of that which he made a subject of, at least for me. Um, But when other artists, I don't want to name names because it's not very friendly, but you just... They tried to do that, and it's so pathetic, you know. And um, I just, you know, and so what you end up with seeing is realizing how well Warhol did it. But I don't really think anybody else could. Yeah.
1: Thank you. Um, the second question was about Russia: uh, whether socially motivated art is more inclusive, and if, in a way, the, the market matters in that case. Um, I don't know who wants to take that take it first
5: um, I think um, I'd just like to um, bring up Duchamp again and his idea that um, art is defined socially that artists do not determine ultimately they're part of the determination but they don't ultimately determine how art exists for us and so I'm all for art that's motivated by any way by politics, by fashion by the fact that you like to eat apples I don't care but I think the thing is it just, just because it's motivated politically doesn't mean it stays politically and I think that's a real question. It's a question of how it translates. I think there's a great French scholar of classics named Pierre Ordo, who said basically that the history of ideas is a history of a series of misunderstandings. And I think in a way art is made to be misunderstood and the great works are the ones that keep being misunderstood and still retains its semblance of uh, being uh, compelling.
1: Thank you. Ben, do you have um. something? I think the question was directed to both of you.
4: I'd just like to express my um, admiration for all those people marching in Russia and um, the Middle East and trying to sort of further the cause of democracy and artists have actually been marching with them and some of them um, have, um, you know, been killed as a result, I think, in Egypt. Um, But I think you have to offset, you know, the dedication of artists marching on the streets in places like... um, you know, in Tarrier Square and in, 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 in Russian cities with the, you know, attempts made by despotic Middle Eastern regimes mentioning no names to create PR campaigns by spending a billion dollars on art in four or five years. I mean, I- these regimes who've spent billions on art in the Middle East haven't exactly furthered the cause of democracy by doing that.
1: Is there any uh,
4: what about the uh, listing question I, yeah.
1: that, I, I was going um, just finishing this one and then no, i 'll go on to the listing yeah. I it, think that
6: precisely have... is precisely the argument that there are two very different worlds, I think Joseph and I have both argued that one is the world where it 's all about money and the other is the world where it 's all about ideas and ideas are free, ideas are freely distributed and they 're free for and art can be an incredibly powerful uh, motivator of all kinds of things whether it 's you know actions and uh, or whether it's, you know, political or whatever, and, and those ideas do translate way out beyond this one percent elite that we're talking about, that is really within the commercial art world. And I think the the most powerful thing is the possibility that art has, not just to, not to be misunderstood, but actually to be understood out there in the wider world by people of all kinds. And I think it's, I think it's patronising to assume that it's uh, it's it's held within the one percent.
1: So, and the last question, which was a question of trading, conceptual listing or listing of arts on some sort of a stock exchange. So it's about investment in art and art as an asset class. Probably Ben is the best person to answer that I think one. It's, it's if you're fine. I mean, it's
4: fine to you know, use art as a commodity or an asset or speculative or otherwise, but if you're going to do that, you've got to have a transparent uh, art market that functions by the same rules as other commodities and financial markets, and we haven't got that yet.
0: <laughs>
1: yes. <laughs> does anybody else have anything to say after that or shall we take some more questions so we have a question over here one we have a question over there Stephen and a third one there please
7: <clears throat> okay uh, my name is Patrick Schumacher I'm an architect and I think there's a position which hasn't been put up uh, which I want to propose there 's on the one hand an argument that just about, uh, that architecture uh, art at the moment is only for the one percent, and then there 's an opposite position that it at the moment isn 't, and a denial of that fact, and I would propose something else that 's saying yes, it is at the moment for the one percent, and that 's rational, meaningful, and has to do with the societal function of art and its purpose. i think it 's a, mi- a fallacy to expect one hundred percent to be interested in what contemporary artists at the moment are doing. And uh, my analysis of the societal function of art is that it's actually um, a platform of discourse and experimentation for the creative professions. It is basically, and what these creative professions are then inspired by and turning out back into the real world of consumption, that is for the 100%, meaning architecture, industrial design, fashion design, Movies, television series, all of these creatives are in fact using the art system as a platform on the one to enter, to engage in it, be inspired by it. And the funding Sorry, system. What is your
1: question? You, I don't uh, have a, question I'm, a just,
7: question. I'm making a contribution to the debate. And um, uh, the, the funding. Um, I'm just one more moment, I'm finishing okay. it. The I funding of, of that, that that platform of experimentation where objects are precisely there because they have no instrumentality yet, they have no function yet, that's what includes, so the problem is how do you fund such an uh, unfinished circulation of raw inspirational materials and that's where the, some kind of funding comes in through the art market. Ha- so the
1: second question was Stephen. <laughs>
3: Take two. Hello.
5: Ah, that's better. Isn't it uh, the artists themselves who are excluding the 99% by their own desire for
4: fame and fortune? Uh, For example, Andreas Gursky, who uh, did the exhibition that uh, opened at Gagosin this week, uh, probably does an edition of three and an artist's proof and sells for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Andreas could easily choose to sell it at £9.99 in WH Smith uh, and include the rest of the, 19, the, rest of the, with the 99%. Hello.
1: Thank you, Sek. <laughs> uh, the third question was here. <clears throat> and the microphone's on its way.
3: Hey. <clears throat> Hello, Chad Tenler from Dow Jones. Uh, my question is for Paul Chan. As um, you said, you have two homes, one in New York and one in Hong Kong one which is very representative of the developed Western art market and the other which is becoming very representative of the developing Eastern art market. Uh, I'd be curious to hear your perspective of ways or where uh, they are inclusive or exclusive, one and the other.
1: Thank you. So um, I don't know the first question, which was that artists themselves are excluding the 99%. Who would like to answer that one? I'll
6: have a go. It's back to what art is for. I mean, if, if, if it's simply being produced to be sold into the market, then yes, you're right. You know, if you really wanted to be you know, and there are artists, by the way, who do what you're suggesting, which is to sell work a lot cheaper and have, you know, much longer print runs and so on and so forth. So you're, you're again only focusing on the art market and artists who are highly successful in that commercial way. There are many artists out there who disseminate their works in all different kinds of ways um, often without a monetary value and the question is, is art is the understanding of art about ownership, or is it about the sharing of ideas? And I think the argument for me is that it's about the sharing of ideas, and therefore it is open to everybody. If it's about ownership, yes, it's for the 1%, but if it's about the sharing of ideas, it's much wider.
3: Thank you. Many years ago, I had lunch with Mick Jagger, and he was asking me about Jasper Johns, and he said, because he met him um, in Paris, and he said, isn't he that guy whose work sells for a lot of money? And I said, you know, it sells for a lot of money. He's considered you know, historically important. That was that was when that mattered. And um, he um, said, Oh, I don't, know. I don't, I don't think I approve. I mean, anybody can have my music for five ninety eight.
1: And so the second question was addressed to Paul.
5: Um. I have been back since 2007 and um, when I was here uh, in 2007 I did a show and I didn't have time to meet artists here and I actually didn't know whether there were artists here. This time around I've been here for four or five days and I've had the chance to meet with a bunch of artists. So it seems like um, the, art, the local art scene here seems much more vibrant than I remember it in 2007. So that in and of itself seems like a good, uh, a good thing. I think it's a, it's a good question what is inclusive or what is exclusive. I think in a way, I think for artists, I think um, uh, we just think about how to do things with the resources that we have. I think sometimes we we think about what we don't have, but mostly we just sort of work with what we have. And so I think for artists, it's a matter of really being sensitive simply to what's around. I visited a couple who's an arts collective who runs an independent art space here in Hong Kong, and they fund it not necessarily by grants but by giving um, painting classes to anyone who's willing to pay for them. Pretty cheap, I don't know, 300, 600 Hong Kong dollars. And they paint like portraits of penguins kissing in landscapes. And they're applying for grants, but that's how they're sustaining themselves. So, in a way, um, art is um, what we can call the activity of a spirit. And perhaps that spirit is the sense of what it means to be independent.
1: Do you have any before we move on I we, we move on to the. So, another three questions, please. So, we have one here. Any other hands going up? Okay, so we have one question
5: here. Uh, my name is Tom Crampton. If I can sort of take on our uh, friend's uh, point here, and maybe form it into a question. Uh, if <laughs> art uh, is for more than the 99%, if you're trying to broaden it, how do you distinguish between art and popular culture if we're trying to bring it to as many people as yeah. possible?
1: um, I imagine a question that everybody would probably like to answer how do you distinguish between art and popular culture
5: Uh, (laughs) I I? I think that's easy I think Mm. it's whatever that makes you consume or whatever that makes you produce I think art is when we see something and make us want to do something and I think popular culture is when we consume something and we just want to consume some Mm. more
3: they both, I think, also, one is a desire to ask questions. The mm. kinds of questions at a certain moment in history, within this particular cultural discourse you find yourself in, have to be asked. The others are really not about that. It's really more about entertainment, usually. And that's a whole other, um, you know, modus operandi, I think. Mm-hmm.
4: Uh, I personally, I want art to be popular culture. And I think Beyonce asked some really great questions.
3: <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah. We read different books probably.
3: <laughs>
6: I'm I'm I think it's beyond entertainment. I think entertainment is absolutely about consumption and I think art has more of a is more of a two way process and it is more about inquiring. And it is more, it can be more challenging. But I don't think, I don't think there is a, a dichotomy between trying to make art more accessible or more available to more people and, and popular entertainment. We may well use similar methods of, of distribution, for example. So they're not clear, it's, I don't think it's clear-cut. Artists can equally well play into popular, the agendas of popular culture as well as as well as anything more, you
1: know.
3: Historic. But they're using it for another reason. That's the, Indeed. Yeah.
1: Any more questions? In that case, we're going to move on to uh, the part where you actually decide who you felt has convinced you more. Um, yes, wait just a <laughs> So I'll just remind you of the motion, which is contemporary art excludes the 9%. You have got on your chairs a voting ballot. You tear it in half and you put it in the box as to whether you are for or against. If you are still undecided, don't tear it in heart and put the whole, um, the whole ballot in the box. The boxes are coming round now and while you're putting your ballot papers in the boxes, each of our speakers is going to um, make a summation of just three minutes and we'll start in reverse order. We'll start with Uh, Lizanne, Can you do it quietly, please?
6: Well, I think I have to return to my initial thesis, which is my my deeply seated belief that uh, everybody has the possibility of being interested in contemporary art. And it doesn't matter what your background is, whether you're rich or whether you're poor, artists have the ability to translate experiences in different ways and to get across to that wider audience. And it can be happening within a gallery context. It can be happening with a a project on the streets. It can be happening in a, a small gallery in the middle of nowhere. But all over the world, even in some very difficult situations, we will find artists who will have that desire to communicate something of the human spirit Uh, to that wider uh, audience. I really believe artists are communicators and that they they do need and want to communicate more widely. And the idea that it's only confined to the 1% who can possess it and own it uh, is anathema. So I'm continuing with my my belief. Thank you. Um, Paul?
5: I agree with her that artists in some ways are communicators. So um, I'd just like to communicate to you. This is my picture of... um, the legroom that I had. Can you see this? Here's another angle. And this is the media council that I sat next to. Thank you.
1: Joseph.
3: Actually, those weren't the photos he said they were when he was showing them to you. I'm close enough to let you know that.
5: A liar, uh, Mr.
3: i'm confused because um, if you voted already what are we supposed to turn you into uh, the, make an event of buyer's regret if we <laughs> if we give a convincing speech now it's kind of after the fact no so uh, i'm not even going to try i think that might made my points already and instead i'm going to tell you something that happened to me once which was i was there was a dinner i had a show in hamburg and there was a. A dinner in my honor and, and there was dancing afterwards And I had to dance with the wife of the Burgermeister I won't go into that But um, <laughs> A man came into the room with white hair Looking a little bit like Albert Einstein And I said uh, "I looked To my friend, that looks like Albert Einstein I said, no it's not, he's dead and I said, "Okay." <laughs> he came over and he said, I'd like to introduce myself My name is something Einstein And I heard you collect jokes and I thought you might be interested in hearing the favorite joke of my uncle, Albert.
0: <laughs>
3: so I said, well, absolutely. So this is the joke. It's a conversation between man and God. And man said to God, listen, God, for you, what, what is 100 million years? And God said, oh, for me, it's only a minute. And man said, wow. Well, listen, God, for you, what's 100 million dollars? And God said, oh, for me, it's just a penny. So man said, "Well, listen, God, can I have that penny?" God said, "Sure, just a minute."
1: And finally, Ben.
4: Um, well, um, uh, that was a very good joke. I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to memorize it and resist competing with it, but the, the arguments coming from the other side were very good, of course, and they basically argued, as one might have thought, that, the, that, that art is different from the market, and contemporary art artists, are different from the market, and my, my fa- one of my favourite stories from the past, it's about Rembrandt self-portraits, and you know there was this entity called the Rembrandt Research Project, which has been going for about 30 years, and their job was to assess... You know, which Rembrandt paintings were actually genuinely painted by Rembrandt. And what they found was that over half of Rembrandt's self portraits were not painted by Rembrandt, they were painted by his assistants because there was a market in Rembrandt self portraits. And I think that um, today we should all bear in mind that you can't actually separate the contemporary art from the contemporary art market They're intertwined. And that's why I'd be really grateful if you'd support myself and Paul with this motion.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right, so um, you've all voted. Counting is happening as you sit there. If there are any more questions, we can take another couple of questions while we're waiting for the final count.
3: Well, Robert Graves said, there's no money in poetry, but then there's no poetry in money either. All right, I tried. You can change your vote, by the way, if you want to. You find my argument persuasive. Okay, that reminds me of the difference between um,
4: realism, impressionism, and social realism. Which Um, is? realism is when you paint what you see. Impressionism is when you paint what you feel. And social realism is when you paint what they tell you to paint.
3: (laughs) (laughs) That's good.
1: I think we have a question over there, Will.
3: art remain elitist if market is well if everyone at the time
6: was involved in the world, to talk to 7 year olds, 17 year olds and 27 year olds yes <laughs> museums and galleries do it all over the world, that's the difference and of course now art fairs are doing public programs and forums and, and everything too so of course the two worlds are getting closer and closer but every respectable museum and gallery has fabulous education programs. We start with the under fives, actually. Get them early.
1: Right. Well, I, uh, this um, wonderful little interlude of jokes and reflections has enabled our fantastically efficient counters outside to go and count. I'll remind you as you came in, these were your votes. So for the motion, i.e. contemporary art excludes the 99%, 39% for, against the motion, 41% and 20% were don't knows. Now, we've had quite a swing here. Uh, For a start, the undecided have dropped from 20% to 3%, so you've all, virtually all of you, made up your minds. Against the motion, 33%, as opposed to 41% at the beginning. And the winners are, for the motion, 64%. Wow. (laughs)
3: So, Are you sure you understood the question?
1: <laughs> so all I can say is thank you again. I think a really massive round of applause for our wonderful panelists.
3: And thank you. You make me feel like I'm in the 1% finally. <laughs>
1: And the last thing is uh, see you next time, next year, next Intelligence Squared debate. Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Squared podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.